Um, but I do want to note, I want you to note that picture. Um, that's of the plains of Moab. And that's where the story this morning takes place. The Jordan River is that dark line at the bottom of the picture. And the Dead Sea is there to the right. So this is where the story takes place. But before we do that, let me spend a few moments in the book of Acts. Um, and we're going to kind of set the tone there, and then we'll jump back to the story of Balaam, which is one of my faves. And then we'll return to Holy Week to see uh, if we can bring it into our lives and how it helps us to, to do that very thing, to kind of wrap up the Lenten season and look towards the last week where we're going to commemorate Jesus' death on Friday and celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So let's read uh, Acts 2, uh, 22-24 again. It's on page 910 in your uh, Bible there in front of you. You're probably going to need it this morning because I didn't put slides in with the passages on it. So we're going old school where you have to use printed page. Sorry. Peter is preaching at the sermon of at his sermon of Pentecost. The Spirit had come with this phenomenal outpouring tongues of fire, and they thought maybe they were drunk. And verse 22, Peter, speaking about what's happening, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That would be the Romans. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter goes on to quote David in proof of this. So God was attesting to Jesus. He did miracles and wonders and signs through him. Mighty works, wonders and signs through him. So God was acting decisively in Jesus. Jesus was the center of what was happening there. In verse 23, he was delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him. Now, you know... Um, that often verse 23 is seen kind of as a, a battleground for, the, for theological viewpoints of God's divine determinism versus man's free will. And, and while that's an important discussion, you can stake your life that that's not what Peter was talking about. He was actually talking about something even more important than that uh, and quite different. And, and this is what he was talking about, quite simply. God acted faithfully to his plan and his promises and what he was doing and what he had foreknown from the foundation of the world, and you acted unfaithfully. God had acted through Christ in a way of bringing about his covenant faithfulness and his covenant promises the way that he had always done, and you resisted it the same way that you have always done. And Luke, the author of Acts, this is a point that's so important to him that he repeats it again in Stephen's sermon. And if you're using a pew Bible there, it's in Acts 7, 
and that's going to be on page 916. And so for 50 verses, and Stephen was counting them. No, he wasn't. The verses weren't there yet. For 50 verses, Stephen has recounted the faithfulness of God and what God has done. And then he gets to to verse 51, page 916, and look at what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who anointed beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels, and you didn't keep it. God's faithful actions met with the unfaithful actions of his people. This is actually a a dominant theme in the Bible. And, uh, and I'm going to call it here the pattern of immediate failure. And here's just a dozen examples of it. And there's more, but that's all I could fit on the slide. Starts in creation, doesn't it? God creates, has expectations, and it's met with what? Immediate disobedience. Noah was righteous, was to act differently from the corrupt souls that were around him, and he ends up cursing his offspring. Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, Abram is given great promises that I'll talk about in a moment. And then he immediately goes to Egypt, loses his nerve, and tells Pharaoh that he's married to his sister. Or that he's not married to his sister, he's with his sister. And then Abram, Abraham is given the great promises of, of offspring and land, and in the very next chapter, he fathers Ishmael by Hagar. The Lord does great wonders in Egypt, brings His people out, and there then on the shores of the Red Sea, they say for the first time, and certainly not the last, did you bring us out here to kill us? It would have been better if we had just stayed there. And then He leads them through the Red Sea. And then they get thirsty, and there's the grumbling at Marah. He brings them to Sinai. This is a high point. It's not that God asks, and then... They're like, hey, why not do it at the same time? Right? While Moses is up getting the covenant, we'll be unfaithful. And they make the golden calf. There's the opening of the great tent, the tabernacle, by which they can have their sins forgiven and have God dwell in their midst. And the very next story is is of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, disobeying the rules and getting destroyed. Entrance into Jericho immediately followed by Achan. David's covenant, a few chapters later, is Bathsheba. Even into the New Testament, the great high point of the, of the Last Supper, this is my body. This is my blood. Followed by betrayal. And Pentecost, the new era, the, the Spirit comes in, and what do we have? Ananias and Sapphira doing the same thing that Achan did, the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Now, those are the ones listed here. There's more. But I think that if we took the time to, to eat, to, <laughs> if we took the time to look through each of those stories, we would find some distinctive truth and would be here for a very long time. But some distinctive truth that would, that would bring us back and allow us to see one facet 
of the many faceted event of Jesus' death and resurrection. So as I take us back now to Balaam, remember this is not the totality of it. But it is a story that fits the pattern. And it's the story of Balaam and the donkey. So let's go back to Numbers 22. And I'm going to read this chapter to us, for us. It's on page 130 of your Bibles, the Pew Bible. If you've got your own Bible, you'll find it under Numbers 22. (laughs) So uh, they had just defeated Sihon and Og, the great kings, on the eastern side of the Jordan. And starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, uh, Midian was a, a people group that tended to be nomadic a lot. So there was an area of Midian, but they, they moved around a lot. So at this time, they were, they were there in Moab. This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox lives, licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pethor, which is near the river, the Euphrates, in the land of the people of Ammah to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For, you, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam, and they gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, is sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too. Please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. 
Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed up against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down, and he fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to call you to, to you to call you? Why did you cannot come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balaam sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. Well, what follows then, you'll note, is, is uh, two or three chapters, two chapters, of, of oracles, of words that God had given to Balaam to speak. Uh, there were three paid oracles. So Balaam was going to pay, or Balak was going to pay Balaam for three oracles and uh, ends up not being very happy with them. And, uh, and so then there's a fourth oracle that's a freebie for him. So what's happening here? Well, we have a full-blown crisis for Moab, don't we? Israel and its, all its multitude had moved in. They camped on the plains that we saw that picture of. And from that spot, Israel would launch her attack on Jericho. So this is the end of the, the wanderings and all that happened in those 40 years um, since leaving uh, Egypt and wandering in the desert. Moab was in great dread. They had great fear of what the people were going to do. Seems to be a common reaction to Israel back then. And uh, he knew, the king Balak knew the economic impact, you know, 
lick up all the grass like the oxen. He knew that the most fertile area under his control was going to soon be out of his control. And he also knew there wasn't much he could do about it. Israel in the previous chapter had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Sihon had totally dominated Moab. And so Balak knew that he was out of his league. He knew militarily he couldn't do anything. But what if, what if he can neutralize or even diminish his God's power, their God's power? If he could somehow diminish the power of Israel's God, he says, I might be able to defeat them. And so he puts a delegation together to go to the famous seer, the celebrated diviner and manipulator of the gods, Balaam of Pethor. Well, this little map uh, shows you how far they had to travel. Balaam was very, very good at what he did, which was he performed magic rituals and rites for a reward. He gave his clients prophecies of their future for a profit. He, and that's P-R-O-F-I-T. And most importantly, he manipulated the power of the spiritual realm and of the gods for the benefit of his handsomely paying clients. And there are actually extra-biblical inscriptions that talk about him and his capabilities. And his fame is shown by the map, isn't it? The bottom red line is where, where uh, Balak and Israel were, and the top red line, cleared up by Carchemish, is where Balaam lived about 420 miles and take roughly 25 days to get there. Suppose it would depend on how fast your donkey was. Um, some of them had the turbo model back then. <laughs> but roughly between the negotiations, there's about at least a month and probably more. So from the time that Balaam sends his first group up and then they come back and the next group up and then they come back, you're probably closing in on six months. Which is why ba Balak says, did I not send for you? Why didn't, you? I mean, these guys have been destroying our economy this whole time. And so Balaam, the, uh, the great seer, is now on site. Now we need to know and remember that Balaam is the bad guy. Uh, we can avoid a lot of confusion, especially with God's apparent changing of his mind go don't go i'm mad at you because you're going that kind of thing it seems like god is waffling but actually he is reacting to the duplicity of balaam who never actually submits as we'll see later balaam's fame and his spiritual activity or spiritual power actually makes him a competitor with god in this story he was famous for divination. He was famous for, for manipulating the gods. He was, um, was a deceiver, as we'll find out later. And the biblical verdict is clear that he was uh, unanimously condemned. He's not a good guy. And like I said, he's a competitor. Balaam's goal is money, but to get it, he has to do exactly the opposite of what God wants. And so it becomes a matter of who is going to win 
in this story and and Balaam being the competitor of God is actually why the story is so profoundly funny and pathetic at the same time not to mention deadly serious so here's the question who gets to bless and curse look at verse 6 Balak says, come and curse this people for me because they're too mighty. Perhaps if you do that, I can defeat them and I can drive them from this land because I know that if you bless somebody, they're blessed. And if you curse, there's somebody, they're cursed. Do those words sound familiar at all to you? Those come from the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Those promises to Abraham are the foundational plot line of the whole Bible. God says, this is what I'm going to do for my people. And Balak says, Balaam, I know you have that same power. And so Balaam, all of a sudden, is, he's, not a, he's not a noble, reasonable, non-Israelite who sees the power of God, even though he says, the Lord my God, and I can only do what he says. No, 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 this is, this is duplicitous. Balaam is the next Pharaoh. He's a human being who is claiming the ability to compete with God. Balaam pretends to know the Lord. Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. But, but Moses is very careful in this story to say that it is God who comes to him. He, he, Balaam says, I know, I relate to him by his covenant name that his people know him. And Moses says, no, actually... The generic God comes to you. You don't know Him. It would be along the lines if I said, if, if you knew that my kids call me Dad, and you come up to say, and say, hey, Dad, and I would go, no, you call me Dr. Hoke. There's a huge distance arm length that's created, right? And Moses is letting us know that Balaam is a poser. He does not know the Lord, but he does know about the Lord because he's very good at what he does and so to the story of the donkey actually there's some very famous artwork done of this story over the years and perhaps this is the most famous of this conflict between Balaam and his donkey <laughs> you, you may not know but actually Balaam's last name was Shrek so having given him permission to go, then God gets mad at Balaam because he went. What's the deal with that? And the answer is, the clues tell us very clearly that Balaam still fully intended to find a way to empty a couple of rooms of Balak's house full of silver and gold. He had worked his diviner's magic and gotten permission to go, even though it had initially been denied and he, he, he says that the Lord has allowed me to go he does fail to mention to the princes of Moab that he's not allowed to curse Israel but he's got a full month of riding to figure out how he's going to get around that one doesn't he and God is well aware of his intentions and so he steps in to take action in verses 21, you see Balaam rose and went with the princes. And then in verse 22, he was with his servants. And that's important, not because they play into the story, but because they're witnesses. 
They're watching what is going on in this event of Balaam and the donkey. And so God sends his angel and the donkey sees it, but Balaam does not. And so three times there's this interaction. The donkey goes off into the field and Balaam strikes her to get her back onto the road. Then there's walls on either side and she squishes his foot against the wall to to get past the angel that she sees. And then finally she simply lays down in a narrow place and refuses to move when she can't avoid the angel. Now, what makes this funny is all these guys are watching this. If it's a narrow place and the donkey lays down, the whole caravan stops, right? Nobody can get past. And these princes of Moab are watching this, the great seer, the great diviner, and they can't even control his donkey. And they're sitting there on their donkeys and they're going, so this is the guy who's going to save Moab. I think, I think Balaam's gone, done well here, right? And Balaam's standing there screaming at his donkey and beating her, and then he starts talking to her. And they're like, this guy has totally lost it. He's so mad because she'd made a fool out of him that he wishes for a sword to kill her. He's so mad. It's so bad that he can't even win the argument with the donkey. Have I ever done that? No, I don't. I wish I could kill you. It's supposed to be ridiculous because that is what happens to people who oppose God. You can't win. And then the story just gets pathetic. The angel of the Lord is revealed. The Lord opens the eyes of Balaam. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And the angel, we don't don't have time really to get into who that is. Just suffice it to say that when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, he he behaves and acts with the full authority of of God himself, of the Lord himself. Balaam is not used to that kind of interaction. And so wisely, he falls on his face. Because like Balak now, he has realized he is out of his league. He's not a competitor. He actually is a poser. And he realizes that he could lose much more than just a lucrative contract because he had asked for a sword to kill with, and there one was. Except it was pointed right at him. And in this competition of who gets to bless and who gets to curse, it has become abundantly clear that Balaam is God's donkey. That the three interactions that he has had with the Lord mimic the three interactions that he has with his donkey, and they foreshadow the three interactions that he's going to have with Balak. The donkey is driven on by Balaam, and Balaam is driven on by his greed. And the Lord has allowed the donkey to speak and the Lord allows Balaam to only say what he wants. He's a seer who cannot see what is in front of him until the Lord opens his eyes. And whereas the donkey was caught between the angel and Balaam, so now Balaam is caught between the Lord and Balak. A competitor? Just a beast of burden. He realizes he has been in grave danger. Now, did he repent? No, he did not repent. Because for the rest of the story, he knows that somewhere out there, 
is a pesky angel with a sword pointed at him. Is it right here? Is it 100 yards that way? Or he's not American, so maybe it's meters. Is it right over there? He doesn't know, but the reason that he speaks only what he's told about is not because he's had a change of heart. It's because he'd like to keep his head firmly set where it belongs. And so Balaam finally knows that no one can curse whom God has blessed, and no one can bless whom God has cursed. His definite plan and His foreknowledge that He promised to Abraham and that He brought to fruition in Jesus Christ, well, it's definite. And Balaam cannot break it. So what follows are three beautiful speeches. It's actually, I think, one of the very highest points of the law itself, where God talks about how he sees his people and how he loves his people and how he has great plans for his people and what is in store for them. It's not what Balak had in mind. And he doesn't pay Balaam for the oracles. So, in the end, God gives him a freebie. A fourth one. That's the story of Balaam. Now what do we do with it? What are the lessons that we can learn from Balaam and, and, and maybe bring it back to Jerusalem as we consider the last week of Jesus' life? And I think there's three. This one isn't on topic, but it, it's too important to not mention. Beware of money. This story would so perfectly illustrate Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and money. You're going to love the one or hate the other. And Balaam is a servant of money. It's what drives him on. It's an alternate God, an elusive idol. And it's one that exerts great control and temptation for us. And so I just wanted to flag it up. The love of money is the source of all kinds of evil, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. And that might be something that is worth thinking about this week. But the second one, I think, is quite on topic, that God always keeps His promises, even when we're not aware. There's no indication anywhere in the story that Israel knew what was going on. It was all done up in the mountains, behind the scenes. Perhaps they didn't even know the story until later, until they captured Balaam and, and they put him to death, but maybe at that point He told them what was happening. Maybe that's when they heard the story. And so there they were, living on the plains, oblivious to the dangers, and yet they were kept by God. Secure from forces that they didn't even know or couldn't comprehend. And I think that we can relate to this. In a world of turmoil and shifting societal norms, a volatile economy in tough times, a record numbers of refugees globally, of a war in Ukraine that is dragging on into years, of Christianity being attacked everywhere, it's easy for us to become frightened and anxious. And it's very easy for us to not keep in the front of our minds that God is entirely aware and is keeping any danger at bay that will keep Him from fulfilling His promises that are now given to us Christ Jesus. But this story shows that just as Peter said, God does not allow anything to keep his covenant plans and promises from being completed. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
on the future day of Jesus Christ. Life is indeed frightening, but this story shows us where our security lies, doesn't it? And then there's a third thing that kind of brings us back. There's a verse in the second oracle. Here's what it says. God is not a man that he should lie. Now he's speaking to Balak and confronting him for his duplicity and his his, uh, dishonesty. And says, I'm not like that. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God has definite plan that he has promised, a covenant that he will not break. He says, behold, Balaam says, I received a command to bless. He has blessed. God has blessed. I cannot revoke it. Extraordinary words. It confirms God's faithful action to his promises and his plan. Nothing can keep him from being uh, unfaithful to that. But you see, the height of Balaam's uh, oracles, the beauty of them, is followed by another immediate failure. Having missed out on Balak's money through, uh, through prophecy, because he wasn't allowed to, Balaam says, you know, there's another way that we could do it. And they send the women of Midian into the camp to entice the Israelites into a Baal worship through a sexualized fertility cult idolatry. God had acted faithfully, and Israel immediately failed. In chapter 25, you can read this story. God's punishment for idolatry was a plague that killed 24,000 people. So what Balaam couldn't do in acting God, in, in, in challenging God's faithfulness, he accomplished in challenging Israel's. So I guess he got paid after all, didn't he? It was short-lived, though, by chapter 31. He's... He's dead. Another repeated failure known by God before it happened. But it makes this last verse, these last two lines of what's on the screen, so remarkable. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. I mean, come on. At the end of the 40 years, what has there been but misfortune and trouble? What has there been but sin and rebellion. And how can God say that He sees none of it? I think it's because this is a forward-looking statement that shows that God looks at His people through the lens of His redemptive, reconciling covenant, and He sees what redemption has made us, not what we were. And that's the third point. This is the facet of what Christ has done for us that I think Balaam shows to us that we can take back as we look into Holy Week. God changes His people into something that they were not before. As I mentioned, each of the immediate, story, immediate failure stories would help us understand Jesus in a different way. And so perhaps a study of the failures of David and Solomon would teach us about Jesus as the cosmic king, the, the one with... The tent and Nadab and Abihu would teach us about Jesus' priestly activity, others about sin and the solution to it. But this story, with this striking predictive 
prophecy of his faithfulness in the face of an immediate failure story, I think teaches us a beautiful truth about what Jesus did next week in Holy Week. You see, God has always wanted his people to be faithful, to give loving from all heart, soul, and might, faithful obedience to him as they kept his words on his heart on their hearts to imitate him in their actions it's right out of deuteronomy 6 adam and eve were to obey noah was to be different righteous compared to the sinful people with corrupt hearts around him abraham was told to walk blamelessly before god israel was told to lovingly keep the law david's sons were to rule obedient to Moses' law from the throne of Israel, and so on and so on. You get the picture. And yet, starting with Adam and Eve, the immediate failure pattern shows us that there has only been rebellion and rejection and disloyalty and sin and lack of love from God's people towards Him in the face of His gracious gestures. And yet, this stunning verse of Balaam's oracle, the donkey speaking God's words, says that due to his covenant redemption, God sees no misfortune or trouble in his people. This is forward-looking to the time when Jesus comes as that perfect, faithful, obedient, loving covenant member, the Son of God. He was the person that God has been looking for ever since He breathed life into Adam. And so in the deliberate and foreknown plan of God, Jesus, in the week that we call Holy Week, offered Himself up on our behalf to pay for all those immediate failures. And by accepting our punishment of death on Friday and defeating that death on Sunday, Jesus could then offer that status of a loving, faithful, obedient, covenant member with God to any man, woman, or child who would trust in Him. And Jesus makes us something into something that we were not before by giving us a right standing with God, before God, next to God. And now God actually sees us literally like verse 21 says, He looks at us and He does not see the rebellion. He does not see the sin. He does not see the separation because it's all been taken away by Christ. We have now the covenant standing of righteousness that God has wanted through all of those covenants, through all of that time. And if that's not enough, the Father and the Son did it in such a way that we are made part of their family. Sons and daughters, given the right to become the children of God by believing in Christ, as the Gospel of John says. And so at the end of Lent, as we look towards Holy Week and we reflect on our lives, we realize that we are the people of immediate failure. We are the people who failed constantly God's expectation that we love Him with all that we are, that we obey Him and His Word, that we imitate Him in our values and actions. That's why He gave us His Word. That's the kind of people He's always wanted. But we know 
that we are extraordinarily accomplished at not doing that. And so he sent Jesus to do it for us and to give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. This is the life that he wants us to live. All out love for him with our heart, soul, mind, and Jesus added strength. Obedience that flows out of hearts that want to imitate him because we so deeply love him. That's the good work that he has begun in you and he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So don't be a Balaam. Remember next week what God has done for you in Christ that you could not do for yourself so that you could be that faithful covenant member because only through Christ you are now a faithful, obedient, loving, faithful child of God. And that's how God sees you. It might not be how you sees you, but it's how He sees you. And so let us live that out by His gracious provision in Jesus Christ. Let's take just a few minutes of silence to think about this and maybe something out of these passages that God can use in your life. And then we will sing our final songs.